0: Last week we looked at this, uh, the account <coughs> of how the two men broke through the roof and brought a, their paralysed friend to Jesus. Today we are still in Mark and it, we're starting at verse 13 of Mark 2 and uh, we read Once again Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? On hearing this Jesus said to them it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. <coughs> and um, I'll leave it there for the moment. Now just want to just make a couple of points about uh, about this to start with is Levi son of Alphaeus has another name and the name that we know him by is Matthew. One of the disciples he's matthew um and we don't know whether he'd always been given these two names or whether like peter matthew was a name that was given to him by jesus the bible's silent on that um it's an interesting thing to think about it's not something i'm going to drill down on this morning but but a lot of the uh, disciples have two names Um, and Levi is one of them. The other thing I also want to notice is that he is Levi, son of Alphaeus. And one of the other disciples is also described as son of Alphaeus, the one that we know as James the Less. You know there are two Jameses, (coughs) James and John the brothers, and there's another James called James the Less, uh, James the son of Alphaeus. Now, if it is the same Alpheus, this could mean that Matthew and James are brothers. And this is merely supposition. We don't know. Um, but it is it is speculation, but it's an interesting thing to ponder because Peter and Andrew are brothers and James and John are brothers as well. Now, if James and Matthew are brothers too, it means six of the twelve disciples are brothers. Which speaks, possibly, to how we can influence people in our own families. Yeah. That would be a good, a good idea. <laughs> um, but we can't do anything more than speculate about whether Matthew and, and James are actually brothers. But it's it, I just think it's intriguing that their father has the same name. And it's an unusual name. It's not a common name. So I think it's quite possible, particularly since they're from the same area. From the same... From the same... A town even but i'll leave that with you to just ponder what i want to do is think about a couple of things the first one is this is is levi leaves his booth now in paraphrase if you like levi's sit, uh, sitting sitting this tax collector's booth and, and jesus calls him and he immediately gets up and he follows jesus and I want to pick up on three things. Uh, the first one is this, is he had an invitation. The second thing is he left the old life behind. And the third thing is, is he didn't hesitate. And, and firstly, th- this just an invitation thing. You see, a lot of people will, will express an attitude or something like it that says, I won't follow Jesus unless you can prove to me he's real. And I talked about that a little last week. And setting aside what they mean by proof, and what kind of proof they're talking about, and exactly how much proof they're talking about, I and mean, how much proof is enough proof? Richard Dawkins was was asked, um, and he's cha- he changed his his um, his stance on it. But uh, yeah, a number of years ago, he was asked, "How much proof would you need to to know that?" that God is God and he said I'd need the stars to realign themselves to say Richard believe me I'm God and he's drawn back from that now he said I wouldn't believe that anymore I just think I was mad yeah. so that, even that's not enough proof for him no. um, but most people won't do something unless they have a convincing reason to do it Um, Convince me with some kind of physical sign. And that's what they mean by proof. And nothing has really changed since biblical times there. There's a couple of biblical examples. The first one is Gideon. Gideon Gideon is given a task by the angel to free his people from the hands of the Midianites. And what does he do? He lays a fleece on the ground um, and he says to the angel, if there's dew on the fleece in the morning but the ground is dry, I'll know it's God calling me to do this. So he puts the fleece out and and sure enough that's what happens and then what does he do? He says, well actually that's not enough proof. (laughs) Now I'm going to put it out again and this time it's got to be the other way around. The invitation or the instruction isn't enough for Gideon, he needs the proof if you like. Now the Bible does say in Malachi, God says test me in this and Gideon tested God didn't he? But but Gideon's test was a test of a lack of faith. The test that Malachi is calling us to give God is a test of faith. If that makes sense. Um, G- Jesus is asked by uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law for a sign. And he talks about, he says, uh, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign and no sign will be given it other than the sign of Jonah. And, and, and Jesus is raised from the dead, isn't he? And, and he, 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 one of the disciples isn't there? Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. And Thomas says, I, I won't believe unless I see him and touch him. Okay? And Jesus says to Thomas, touch my hands and believe me. All right? And he says to Thomas, because you have seen me, You have believed, blessed are those who have not seen me and have yet believed. Interestingly, I think that the disciples all met with the risen Jesus and they didn't believe either. So actually, Thomas required less proof than they did because they did meet with him and they did see him. And still they didn't believe. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see him. He sees him and then he believes. So in a sense, Thomas has had more faith than the disciples did which I think is interesting. And if you read the account of the feeding of the 5,000, which is, with the the exception of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels, you will see uh, that the crowds follow Jesus. He says, you're following me, not uh, because you saw the signs, but because you ate your loaves and had the fill. and, and, and John the Baptist, when he's in prison, sends some of his disciples and says to, to Jesus, and I again I mentioned this last week, says, "Are you the one who 's to come, or should we expect someone else?" And Jesus sends them back with evidence of things that he's done. And they're both examples of where someone needs some kind of proof, some, something tangible, before they will follow the Lord. Um, and sometimes we leave it there and we think that's what the world is like. That's what they're like out in the world. They're so ungodly, they need a sign. And we who believe, we don't need a sign. And I think, but do we? You know, e- e- even, in, even in the church, I think that, that desire of proof has infected us sometimes in, way, in ways we don't recognise. Sometimes we have a downer on people um, who, who ask for a sign. But what about us? Are we likely to jump into asking God to give us a sign before we do what he calls us to do? before we'll accept something as his leading and follow it? We all seek to hear God's voice and help us as we try to live our lives as Christians from asking God, you know, what church should I go to, to who should I marry, and even asking for God's guidance on mission, what mission should I go on and so on, and how do we hear from God? We ask him to give us a sign. Give me a word, Lord. Let someone else speak to me or give me something in in my spirit. We don't Do you see what I mean? We're asking for for, for some kind of sign from God. So we ask for God as well for signs. And then even if we do think God's speaking to us, how do we respond? What do we do if we sense God's asking us to do or say something? Do we we just do it immediately, like Matthew? Or do we do what Gideon did and say, well, actually, I need a bit of confirmation, Lord. We don't call it proof or a sign. We ask for confirmation. But there comes a point in the process where we've got to bite the bullet and follow God. We can't just ask for sign after sign after sign after sign or confirmation after confirmation after confirmation after confirmation. There comes a point where we've got to say, this may or may not be you, Lord, but I believe it's you and I'm going to do it. Secondly, uh, uh, Levi leaves the old life. Jesus says several things about leaving the old life. He says, no one who looks back to the plough was fit for service. He says, go and sell all your possessions, give all the money to the poor and then come and follow me. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And the point here is that one of the biggest barriers to faith and following God is our love of our current life and our unwillingness to leave it behind. Um, uh, I, you will all know that I worked for for a while on the tools, fitting automatic doors, and the guy I worked with had been a Christian in the past, um, and he'd he'd been one of those Christians that I really looked up to, and and I really, he's he was older, about ten years or so older than me. And he's a really, really gentle, gentle guy. And I really looked up to him. But he'd fallen away from the Lord. he drifted away from church. And he drifted away from Jesus. And he was living a life which he didn't go to church anymore. And I was working with him. um, And he said to me, he said said to me at one point in time, I said, I'm not going to become a Christian again. I, 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 I recall him saying to me on one occasion, he said, look, I know that following Jesus is the right thing to do. And I know that I should do it. The problem is this. I know that there are certain things in my life That being a Christian means I'm going to have to give these things up and I don't want to give them up. So I don't want to. Now there was an integrity in what he said there. At least he recognized it. Um, He understood that to authentically follow Jesus, there are things which we enjoy that are incompatible with our faith that we have to leave behind certain habits, certain attitudes, certain actions, certain things in our lifestyles which we have to get rid of. And many people, like the guy I work with, are not willing to pay the price of peace with God. The good news, actually, is that he did come back to the Lord. He's now a regular and committed member of a church north of Bristol. So he did ultimately follow through. And I think part of the reason for that is the integrity that was in his spirit. So when God touched him, he he was willing to follow. But Paul was in that place, wasn't he? He was confronted by the Saviour and the choice he made was to pay the price. This man is my servant. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He knew there was a price he was going to have to pay, and he, he was willing to pay it. But looking back on all the things he used to do, the type of person he used to be, he said, I was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, and as to the law faultless, and all this kind of stuff. And he says, but whatever were gains to me, I consider them loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss um, uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Mm-hmm. We're called to leave our old lives behind. And sometimes we drag the old life into our new life in the same way that a married couple drags tin cans on the back of their car from their single life into their married life. And then there's an immediately there. Levi didn't hesitate to follow Jesus. Interestingly, the people who hesitated in the gospels are those who had something to lose either materially or in terms of social standing. So, for example, the rich young man who came to Jesus and asked what he must do to be saved had too strong a love of his wealth. It says he went away sad. And then we've got description of, of people who come to the Lord. Jesus says, um, so in Luke 9, for example, Jesus says to a man, follow me. And he says, Lord, please let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then another one said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts a hand back to the plough and looks back is fit for a, sur- for a service in the kingdom of God. Yeah. There's a film, it's called Almost an Angel. It's a secular film, it's got Paul Hogan in it. Um, and he plays a man who dies and he's sent back as an angel to do good works so It's a second chance of being good. It's actually quite a good film. It's ridiculous in many, re- in many ways because angels are not dead people who get sent back to do good deeds. and and heaven isn't how it's portrayed and God doesn't look like Charlton Heston (laughs) and it it makes a number of interesting comments on faith the church and spirituality in general but one thing which his character says at one point when he's talking to God in the scene he's talking to God he said I was he said I was planning to get really religious just before I died (coughs) and that's what a lot of people think is they think they think they can have time at the end of their life to get religious just before they die to kind of like buy the insurance policy in the last week of their life so that they get in, live their life the way they want now and then, because they don't want to give up the lives they have. But the weakness of that is no one knows when they're going to die. Right, precisely. And uh, I think it was Augustine said in the third century, it's never too early to come to Christ, but at any moment it could be too late. There will come a time when it is too late to follow God, even though Scripture tells us God is not slow in keeping his promises, some understand slowness. The very next verse in that, that's uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, Um, God is not slow in keeping his promises, some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, wanting everyone to come to eternal life. 2 Peter, just after Hebrews, Hebrews, James 1, Peter 2, Peter Uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Do you know what 2 Peter 3, verse 10 says? The verse immediately following. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything, and it will be laid bare. So God's not impatient. He wants everyone to come to eternal life. But the very next verse says the day of the Lord is going to come at a time when you don't expect it. Second thing I want to think about Levi here is, is he, threw, he threw a party. Yeah. He had a party for all his friends. And eating food together is something really significant for people, isn't it? Sharing meals lies at the heart of what it means to be friends, to be in fellowship with one another. Um, <coughs> so I developed that point earlier when, when we were earlier, in Mark. So this is going to serve as kind of like a refresher of sorts. But it isn't without reason that food plays a significant role in the establishment of the early church. Acts two forty-two to 46 says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And, and there is some discussion as to whether or not this phrase, to the breaking of bread, refers to normal fellowship meals or communion. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not going to get into, into whether it means one or the other. I don't actually see any reason why it can't actually mean both. Um, but, the, but they they clearly yet together. Paul speaks of coming together for a meal. In 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about communion... Um, he's actually talking about when they come together for meals and stuff as well, in fellowship meals. Um, and he corrects some wrong practices in that. And in Jude, um, he talks about eating together, people eating together. And in Jude, it, 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 they, they're called love feasts. You now, hospitality is connected to love, isn't it? Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted one to another in love, honour and serve one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, keep your spiritual fervor. serving the Lord, be <laughs> joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people with who are need, practice hospitality. In the context of love must be sincere, there is this command to practice hospitality. Um, and Peter does the same thing. In 1 Peter 4 verses 8 and 10, he says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitalities to one another without grumbling. And then he goes on to talk about use whatever gifts God's given you. So he, he hints that hospitality could actually be a spiritual gift. Um, it's not listed as a spiritual gift in the way that the other spiritual gifts are listed, but there's certainly a hint in Peter that hospitality is, a, it, it is has a spiritual dimension to it. And hospitality is more than about just eating, but it does include eating. Hospitality and eating together are are an expression of love, and I would argue that they're one of the most underutilized tools for building fellowship and sharing faith. And I, I would suggest that if hospitality is a gift, it is one of the least valued gifts there is. I mean, if 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 we can pray cry out to God that God give us the gift of hospitality and give us the gift of encouragement those two gifts alone we would transform the church if we if we showed those in abundance And feasting is a celebration why was Levi throwing this party because he met Jesus and he wanted to show everybody Jesus. He wanted to show, he was celebrating it. And I, I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this, but I think every wedding I've ever been at has had what they call a reception or a wedding breakfast. Every wedding I've ever been to has some kind of meal laid on. Why is that? Why is it that when you have a birthday party, people feel obliged to bring food? They'll put on a buffet. Why is it that in pretty much every culture on earth celebrating something is accompanied by food and eating together? See, We can't help it. We all do it. All cultures all over the world do it. You have a celebration, a wedding feast or a wedding or, or some kind of celebration and food is laid on. And pretty much the first thing Levi did after meeting Jesus was throw a feast for people. I think it's likely he was celebrating. He'd met Jesus, his life had changed, and he wanted to celebrate and tell his friends. The ultimate celebration, of course, is the final one, the one which we will attend yeah. in heaven, and it will be a feast with a, without reckon it would be beyond our imaginations. And uh, the image of heaven which, which television and film most frequently presents is as ridiculous as you can possibly imagine, isn't it? I kind of alluded to it when I saw um, um, Almost an Angel just now, but almost every film I've ever seen which portrays heaven in some way has um, soft, kind of ethereal womb music. is white, there's like clouds everywhere, and everyone's walking around in white suits being really quiet and nice to each other. It's kind of this bland, colourless, ethereal place with hearts playing in the background. And there's little or no atmosphere. Christians don't see heaven like that, do they? The most common metaphor for heaven I hear Christians use is that of worship. That heaven is going to be like um, the most wonderful worship service we've ever attended. But the most common picture the New Testament paints, and the one that Jesus painted, is not of a worship service, it is as a feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebratory feast. A party, and that's not bland or colourless. The great banquet describes heaven as a great feast and the king as God, sending out an invitation to everyone who will come. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins are to prepare for a banquet. Revelation 19 verse 9 itself is, The angel says to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb and then he added these are the true words of god isaiah describes being in the presence of god as, be, as feasting it says on this mountain isaiah 25 on this mountain the lord almighty will prepare a rich a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats and the finest of wines Luke 13 says that people will come from east and west and north and south and they will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and he with me. Jesus describes rejoicing in heaven whenever a sinner comes to repentance. Our eternity is going to be a blast. It's it's, it's not going to be some kind of miserable Bible study for eternity. (laughs) And the great news is this. Everyone's invited. Come to the feast. You're all invited. The only thing that will stop you getting in is if you reject the invitation. You know, people say God's going to send so-and-so to hell for this or for that, are they? And the answer is no. When they do this or that, they're shown they're refusing the invitation. It's their choice. So the question everybody must answer for themselves is, have I accepted the invitation? And that brings me on to evangelism, because that's the invitation. Levi wouldn't have used the word evangelism, but that's basically what he's doing. He's using a meal to introduce people to Jesus. A is a great forum in which to create a relaxed, relaxed atmosphere to introduce people to Jesus. It, I mean, this is a Middle Eastern culture of 2000 years ago, but if you read books or diaries of explorers from the past, you'll notice that regardless of circumstances, people see hospitality as being particularly important. Alpha, the whole Alpha course is built around meals. Um and I think one of the reasons a lot of alpha courses don't do quite as well as they as they think they're gonna do, is because what they do is they don't do a f- they don't do a meal. What they do is they say, We'll do an alpha course, but we're not gonna put on a meal, we're just gonna give you a piece of cake. We're we'll do an alpha course with a piece of cake. No, it needs to be a meal. It needs to be a proper meal. We need to sit round the table and eat round a meal, eat together. And I think a lot of the reason a lot of alpha courses yeah. really really aren't as as good as people think they're going to be is because they don't follow this pattern. The most effective alpha courses are. And then just a, f- a few short points as to as to what this meal is. The first thing is, is it was at Levi's home. Oh, we're very small in number today, and in, in some regards, given the temperature in this room. We might have been better off meeting in someone's home where it would have been warmer. Mm. Um, But we seem to think that the best place to share the gospel is on the streets or in some kind of arena somewhere. The truth is this, the home. The small personal acts of hospitality and kindness that we give to one another in the home are, are the best places for the gospel to be most powerfully presented. When we invite people into our homes, we're showing them honour. We're also making ourselves vulnerable to them. We talk about shutting the front door and shutting the world out. But when you welcome people into your home, it goes against that impulse and lets them in. Your home is the most effective tool of evangelism you can have. If you want a better chance of reaching friends, work colleagues, neighbours with the gospel, the best thing you can be is hospitable and friendly. You'll get much more response from people if you invite them to a meal than if you preach at them, or if you argue with them, or if you criticise them. Don't underestimate the importance of your home in in your arsenal of ministry and proclamation. That's not to say we shouldn't understand the gospel. That's not to say we shouldn't know why we believe what we believe, so that when people ask us the questions, we're able to give them an answer, like the the one Peter three fifteen stuff. But don't underestimate the value of your home. And it was Levi. It was Levi's home. Um, it, we often seem to think that the only way you can do evangelism is to go. And I've heard people say things like. Jesus didn't tell us to ask people to come, he called us to go. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to all creation and those kind of things. Um, and, uh, and, and And I'm not belittling the Great Commission, which clearly does tell us to go. And there are good reasons why we should go. But when we go, quite frequently when we go we think about going to another culture or to another land and when you do that the likelihood is is you won't know the people you're going to you may not know their culture you may not know their language and you will you will spend a lot of time learning those things in order to go to proclaim the gospel more effectively the bible does command us to go into all the world but in our rush to go many of us neglect the mission field on our doorstep There are unbelievers in our families, in our neighbourhood, and in our workplace, and they all need to hear the gospel. And the gospel writer doesn't actually say that they were his friends. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners and disciples, many sinners were eating with him. It doesn't say they were his friends, but given the reputation of the of the tax collectors, I think it's almost certain they were his friends. And Zacchaeus did the same. And when we read about Peter preaching at Cornelius's house in, in the Acts of the Apostles in Acts 10, we read that um Luke Luke's recording uh, and he says on the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them And it says he had called together his close relatives and friends and Peter preached to them. And they heard the gospel and they responded to it. And then the last thing to note is that it's not only the friends that were there, but actually the Pharisees were there as well and they were watching and standing in judgment. There would always be critics for the way we do evangelism. Whether you just go and you don't, and you don't invite people into your home, whether you invite people into your home, uh, yeah, however you do evangelism, someone somewhere will be telling you that you're doing it wrong. That's right. We've got to be careful that we don't do that. I've lost count of the number of times I've been criticised for the way I am as a Christian. I mean it's relatively easy to shrug off uh, people who are atheists or people who don't claim to be Christians because Often what they're doing is repeating slogans they've heard from others. What's really hard is when people who are Christians along with you criticise you and condemn you for the way you are a Christian. That's what's really hard. There's a couple of examples from my own life, and these are personal for me. But when I, have, when I was in my first church, one of my habits was to go to the pub with some of the men and to and, and to try and encourage them to build relationships with each other and with us and by the other people that go in there, there regularly. And I was criticised and actually asked not to go to the pub because it was a pub. I was in, I was accused of encouraging them to get drunk. Um, and actually, my job was threatened. I was told, we will sack you if you don't stop. And then in another church, Wendy and I... Um, we're quite open people. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we quite often tell you you know, how we're feeling and, and, and the struggles we have. Um, and some of the other church leaders uh, told us that um, we shouldn't be doing that, that we were leaders, that we shouldn't show weakness. And we were criticised for it because apparently leaders aren't supposed to show weakness. And we, we, we were quite heavily critica- criticised for it. Both of those occasions were where someone who was supposed to be in a position where they're to encourage you and to support you didn't get criticised. We need to share the gospel with people. We all need the gospel. And actually, the one place you should find Jesus is in a church. In fact, if you can't find Jesus in a church, you sh- it shouldn't be meeting there. But many people, millions of people in the UK alone won't ever meet Jesus unless we share the gospel with them. And millions of them won't go, they won't darken the doors of a church. There are millions of sick people in our nation who don't know where the physician is. And going back to what I said about friends and family, we don't have to go very far or try very hard to connect with them. How will they hear unless we tell them? Paul says that. How will they understand unless we tell them in a way that they can understand? If if their ears are closed because of some something that we are doing, which is caused them to think all Christians are hypocrites, I'm not going to listen to what a Christian says. How will they hear it? Looking around at culture generally around us, do we really think people understand the gospel? If you watch the news and you watch the news presenters, do these news presenters really understand the gospel? I think Christians get prejudged and misjudged far more frequently than understood and disagreed with. And as an aside, we need to note that when someone prejudges you, they're the ones that are judgmental and prejudiced. I would suggest that one of the best ways we can do evangelism as a church is to start doing things like opening our homes, inviting friends, neighbors, work colleagues, the lady at the shop, whatever it is. I said about, stop cutting our meeting programs in half last week, didn't I, for evangelism. now we don't have a huge meeting program because we're not a huge church. Um, But I'm gonna make more of an effort this year to try and meet with people who don't believe, so that I might share my faith with them. And we'll try and do it around a meal table, in the face of what may be criticism. Share your faith. Well, thank you for listening. And I didn't say amen at the end like I usually do. (laughs)